0: Have you ever had somebody that has said they're gonna do something and then doesn't do it? Or someone saying that they won't do something and then they go and do it anyway. Which of those is better? Neither, well, but which is better? I didn't ask which one's good. Because the Bible does say let your yes be yes and your no be no, so it should be simple, but Which is better if you have somebody that that says they're going to do something and then they never do it. Or someone that says, no, I won't do that, but then they do go and do it. The second one, yeah. And Jesus taught this as a parable, which is a fictional story with a point. But he says that there's this farmer that has two sons. One of them says, yeah, dad, I'll go do that. And then he changes his mind and doesn't do it. And then the other son says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he realizes he was wrong. And then he does go and do it. And he says the same thing to the crowd. He says, which one of these is better? And we're probably all guilty of both. At one time or another. And I would argue it's better to be the second one. Because I think that's Jesus' point. It's better to have our words or our initial rejection. And then actually obey. Than it is to say we're going to do something. And then to disobey. But on the the Bible is filled with people that maybe said they were going to do something and then didn't or the other way around but on the night that Jesus was arrested Peter said no for sure Lord I'm gonna be faithful to you and he denied him three times but at the end Peter asked for forgiveness and he was faithful to Jesus he actually on the day of Pentecost he was filled with the Holy Spirit and was able to preach and thousands of people became converted so he did obey he had a mistake along the way but he obeyed And uh, in Jonah so far, we've seen God's amazing mercy and grace at work. And uh, even though Jonah was fickle, and even though humanity is fickle, and sometimes we make mistakes, sometimes we're guilty of saying we'll do something, and we don't do it, or that we say, no, I'm not going to do that, but we repent and ask for forgiveness. But God's calling us to obey him because he loves us. And so the experience of Jonah here in Chapter 3, so uh, turn or swipe there in your hard copy or your iBible to follow along, but we come into this chapter with great hope. Jonah was rescued by, out of the great uh, fish, and I didn't tell Victor this, but this is the victor of the story I told about the uh, kids' Sunday school with the uh, who wants to get vomited out of the whale. He remembers that. You know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, Victor, so... I told this story without asking you, but you weren't here, so. But don't, Jonah obeyed his, or disobeyed his first call. God told him, go to Nineveh and preach, and he said, nope, I'm out of here. Tries to go as far away as possible, goes all the way, tries to get to Tarshish, doesn't get there. And then we can under, maybe we can understand that, because Jonah was given a very hard call. He had the job of a prophet. Now, prophets weren't very popular, because popular usually they were going and preaching repentance to people. And prophets like Jeremiah had a miraculous thing happen, and then uh, people wanted to kill him. So you can understand Jonah was a little bit reluctant. But last week we looked at Jonah was rescued by a great miracle. A fish swallowed him up and spit him out on the land. So we think coming into this, well, okay, of course, Jonah's going to be a repentant man. He's going to do the right thing and have the right heart. And even if he doesn't understand what God's doing, he's going to do his best to follow after him. We hope that Jonah responds to God's miraculous grace with obedience. And we hope that he's had his heart transformed by God's mercy. And we also hope that his whole heart is changed. As a person who's received mercy and grace, that he would be a person who would be gracious and merciful. And now that he would trust God and obey him. So that's the hope that we come into chapter 3 with. So if you would uh, follow along in your head, with uh, Jonah 3, 1 to 10. I'm reading out of the NIV 2011. It says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. May God bless the reading of his word. So this starts off right at the beginning. It's an echo of the very beginning of Jonah where it says the word of the Lord came to him. And it starts with the word of the Lord came a second time. God's giving Jonah and the Ninevites... A second chance God cares enough about them both for the Ninevites and Jonah to give them another back kick of the cat and yet he persists in calling them even though Jonah disobeyed he wants them to come and so Jonah is called once again to preach to the Ninevites but there is a change here he says instead of just go to the Ninevites and uh, tell them that my wickedness has come before me he actually says this time Go to the Ninevites and proclaim the message I give you. And this is uh, this is just a subtle little thing, but it's such an important thing. And for uh, a preacher of the word as I am, I have the privilege of being. This is such an important thing because uh, the Bible says not to add or subtract to the word of the Lord. And so there's a difficulty here because sometimes the, what the word of the Lord says doesn't get taken very well. And sometimes when you speak truth to people, they don't want to hear the truth. And that's why Jonah ran away, because he was scared of his call. But uh, those of you who are sitting there and thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not a preacher or a teacher. Aha, uh-huh. you're not off the hook, because all of us are called to preach and teach the word to those around us. We're all ta- told to share the gospel. And so all of us are told that we have to be like Jonah and tell other people about God's love and his mercy. So the message that we're given by God means that telling the truth. But there's uh, the flip side to this. And sometimes people try and use the truth as a stick to beat people over the head and say, I'm a Christian. You better listen to what the Bible says. But they don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. And so the primary message that we're to give, the truth, is the love of God. And tell them that because God loves you, yes, you're sinning, but he loves you and he wants to accept you and forgive you if you but ask. And so God, throughout the book of Jonah, and actually throughout the Bible, is calling for his people to be faithful in spreading the gospel and spreading the message that he gives us. And so in verse 3a, we hear that Jonah obeys, sort of, though. And it's a bit of a cliffhanger for next week. We see that Jonah does obey, but it says that Nineveh or Nineveh is such a great city that it would take three days to proclaim the message through and so I'm not a theologian but I read really well I am a theologian sorry I'm not a historian I should say but I read uh, about history and there was not a city that would literally take three days to get through during this time and even if you did the circumference of the city it's probably not that so the the uh, historians have a couple different ideas and one is either that this was a circuit of villages and towns that would take three days to travel and speak. Or if you were literally trying to speak everywhere in Nineveh, all kind of the public corners, it would take three days. But the Bible says that Jonah spent one day preaching. And that's why I say he obeyed, sort of. He kind of did the bare minimum that he could get away with. Away with. And so uh, Jonah's message is short and sweet. And some of you go, well, I wish Adrian would be short and sweet sometimes. But he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's the message. That's the message of repentance, grace, and love. Do you feel the love? Do you feel the grace? Well, it's a short message and it's straight to the point. And uh, the word, the, kind of the key word here is overthrown. And it's the same word that's actually used to describe what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, that God literally overthrew the city, He destroyed it. But Jonah, being a prophet and a man after uh, a man of God, he would have known what it says in Jeremiah 18, seven to, eight, seven to eight. It says, "If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, or the same word is overthrown, torn down and destroyed." And if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. So even though Jonah's message is short and sweet in saying that in 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown, he knows this verse. And he knows that even though God is saying that they will be destroyed, he knows there's a but in there. There's a but if you repent, then not. God will relent and he doesn't share that with the Ninevites. Notice that. He just says, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. And he leaves it at that. And so the, the key word, uh, different translation, actually say it's overturned. And the, the word in Hebrew is hapak, uh, which is, has a double meaning. It means to either turn over or destroy. That's the negative side of it. But the positive side, the other side of the double meaning, is it can mean turn around Or to bring to repentance. So it's a play on words almost. It's an offer to either salvation. Or destruction. And it's a choice. So either death or life. That's what Jonah is offering the people. That says God is offering the people. Is either destruction or life. It's up to them. But either way they will be overthrown. And so what this means to us. It seems like all gloom and doom. But the Ninevites understood the destroy aspect. They're like, oh, God's going to destroy us. We've heard about this powerful God, and he's coming to destroy us. And yet, we'll see in the following verses that they actually hope for more than destruction. They hope for something else. But to put this to us, if you're living apart from God, then your whole life needs to be overthrown. Everything that you value, if it's outside of God, needs to be overturned. And that's what God offers and threatens if you are disobedient to him he says your li- whole life needs to be turned upside down your priorities what you're going after it's not going to bring you life it's going to bring you death and that sounds like a harsh reality but that's what it is but the throughout this story and we'll see right now that after your life is overturned that here the uh, Ninevites they believed And they repented. So when God proclaims that there is death, that there is destruction imminent, he says, if you believe me and you repent, then there's hope. And these people, it says, they believed God. And that's the key. They believed the word of the Lord. They believed what this prophet of God said. And so they started fasting and praying. And these were ancient demonstrations of mourning of uh, realizing, of showing grief. And it started from the top down. It says that uh, it's not just believing in what God says, but it's actually following that belief into action. And so the sackcloth and ashes that they put on was a sign of grief, humility, and penitence, which are all hallmarks of true repentance. And so the greatest to least, no one was excluded. The king himself of Nineveh uh, took off his royal robes, which were the sign of his uh, position of power and wealth. And he literally put on sackcloth. So he took off what could have brought him pride. He took off what made him a big person. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, re- I'm going to uh, humble myself before the Lord. And I'm going to put on coarse sackcloth. And then he got off of his throne and sat down in the dust. And he told everyone in Nineveh to do the same. So he said, God alone is Lord. God is king. I'm going to get down off my throne and sit in the dust. And so this isn't just a, just a verbal repentance. He's actually showing by his actions. His whole heart is trying to follow after God. He said, I'm not just going to give verbal platitudes and say, oh God, forgive me. I'm going to actually show that I want God to forgive me. And even at, at this point, as I said, they don't know what God would do. They weren't followers of the Bible. They didn't know this verse in Jeremiah. They didn't know that when God threatened destruction that there was hope. But yet they still choose hope. They said that they call on God. He's calling everyone to call on God in verse 7 and 8. Give up their evil ways and their violence. So he's saying, give up what you used to do. Now the uh, the Ninevites were part of Assyria, which was the race of, or the group of people that uh, boasted in their violence. They would have art decorations in their city showing how they had killed and murdered pregnant women and stepped on people and just massacred people. They boasted in their violence, and here the king is saying, God is threatening destruction. We need to repent. And give up our past evil violent ways so he's saying it and he's acting it out and so true repentance is turning away from our sin and turning towards God and that's what they're modeling here they turned away from their evil ways and they turn towards God and salvation is only possible through calling or crying out to God Not just in our in our words as I said but in our actions and that's what the king he says call out to God not gods but God the Lord of Lords the King of Kings call out to him and turn away from your evil ways and so God uh, told Jonah to cry out against Nineveh right in chapter 1 verse 1 he says call out to Nineveh and tell them about their distraction or their destruction and then later in the first chapter the ship captain called Jonah to cry out to God, and he didn't. And then the sailors, after they see the power of God, they do cry out to this God, this Yahweh. And then finally, when Jonah's cast into the depths of the sea, he says he cries out to God, and God rescues him. And now Jonah does cry out to God on behalf of the the cities. He cries out to Nineveh and tells them of God's destruction. And the people respond with an amazing response. And they, uh, all of them, it says, repented in word and in deed. And now, Jonah had a one-day sermon. and Well, actually, not a one-day. It, he had one day of ministry with a six-word sermon. I, don't, I should have counted it in the original language. But, and the whole city repented. Now, I would love <laughs> if that could be in our city. And I believe it could be. I believe that we could go out there and the Spirit of God could move so powerfully that the whole city turned to God. Because we have great hope. And so the people, the people uh, the, that of, the Nineveh, of Nineveh, sorry, I'm stumbling. People of Nineveh, what they do, they say, perhaps God will change his mind. Perhaps if we repent, God will do something. So they have great hope in God's compassion. The king says it this way in verse 9. Who knows? God may relent with compassion so that we will not perish. And this is the third time in the book of Nineveh that uh, a pagan expresses concern for the lives of others. He's the king and he's, he's concerned for his people. And at this point, Jonah is the only one who hasn't actually shown concern for anyone else's life but his own. The pagans were all concerned. These people that were supposedly far from God are the ones that are trying to preserve life and crying out to God for mercy, and the uh, they act in hope and in faith, and they have no guarantee of what God's going to do. They don't they don't know or understand His promises at this point, so they're hoping in uh, in God, whose faith is unseen and unheard of at this point. And that's what Hebrews 11:1 says that faith is it says now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see so it's hoping against hope that God would do something even if it doesn't make sense even if we don't think it's possible and its faith is in the unseen the spiritual realm isn't something that you can feel taste or touch It's like uh, trying to explain sunlight only by seeing shadows. You can't possibly understand or feel or touch it without faith. And so it's believing that the miracle is possible. It's believing that God can move. And so these people respond to the word of God and their hearts surrender to him. And so they show signs of humility and a willingness to accept whatever God has for them. At this point they only thought destruction was going to come and so they humbled themselves and said whatever God does I surrender all I surrender all to whatever God wants to do that's the heart of repentance and so like the pagan sea captain the Ninevites realize that there's nothing that they can do to force God to act a certain way it's not a I give God something God gives me something back it's a I'm surrendering to God and whatever he does he's the God not me it's saying he is God I am not and so mercy and grace are gifts from God there's no such thing as entitlement in faith it's believing that God is God and I am not and whatever he would do in my life is up to him so my acts of worship my acts of giving my acts of service aren't to do something for God to like me I do them because God loves me and it's a response to what he's already given us And so it's not out of compulsion. It's not to try and twist his spiritual arm and say, well, I I praised you this morning, so you have to answer my prayer. No, it's God is God. I am not. And if he answers his prayer, it's because he loves us, not because he has to. God doesn't have to show any of us anything that he doesn't want to. He doesn't have to be merciful. So the, the only thing that the Ninevites earned at this point was absolute destruction. And yet... God, out of his great compassion his great mercy even though their actions were sinful even though that they had been prideful in their violence God chose to show them love and mercy and grace and so our mercy and our grace that that we receive are just gifts to us we get to receive them because he loves us so because God is so good he wants to lavish us with his love he wants to give us good things And the Bible says that God wants all to be saved. God wants everyone to receive this mercy, this love, and this grace. And we can see how much he cares because even the the worst enemies that Jonah could imagine, God sends him to go and preach to them because he doesn't want them to be destroyed. He wants them to be saved. In 1 Timothy 2, 1-6, it says this. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, Intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom of all, for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So Paul is writing here to his protege Timothy. And he's saying "All God wants everyone to be saved. And he provided a way. It's through his son Jesus who's a, the mediator for all people. And so God responds to this mercy and this grace. Or sorry, he responds to humanity's fallenness and humanity's sin with forgiveness and grace and so he was res- and uh, sorry the prerequisite for this though is repentance and repentance isn't something that we're. it's not an exchange that we are giving God something it's just surrendering to God and saying I can't do this on my own I can't possibly save myself I've dug such a big hole that I can't climb out of it. The only way that I can get out of this hole is if you help me. And so that hole that all of us are in is death. It says uh, the the wages of sin is death. And who here has ever sinned at all? So the wages of that sin is death. And I'm just as guilty of that as all of you are. Okay, well, that's the message of the day. Thank you. No, the... (laughs) That's not where God leaves us, though. He cares so much about us that he sent Jesus to us so that we could be saved. But in his mercy and his compassion, he doesn't force that on us. He presents it and then leaves it to us to respond to that through repentance. And so God responds to repentance with great compassion. So don't rush past this. When we repent, God responds to us. Sometimes we think, well, I need to cover this up, this area of my life. I need to cover this up because it's yicky. I don't want to deal with that because that's, that's not very nice. But God wants to deal with that area of your life. God wants to deal with those areas of all of our lives because he says, be holy as I am holy. And now before we start getting legalistic, that's not on our own effort. That's not on our own strength. It's a participatory work of grace. Because God loves us, He'll give us what we need, but we have to surrender that to him. He doesn't take it out of our hands. He works with us through the Holy Spirit to help us become more and more like his son Jesus. So God's, God's heart is for all, all to be saved, every single person. But he leaves it up to the person to respond. So there are people that will reject God, even into death. And I, I honestly think that breaks God's heart. I don't think he's happy that people reject his love. It's like a father with a child. Do you love that your child wants to run away from you and doesn't want to have anything to do with you? No, that breaks your heart. But because God is just and holy, he can't make somebody be forgiven if they don't want to be. He can't. It's not a loving thing to do to force someone to love you. He gave us free will and the option to reject him, even though it breaks his heart. And so God's heart is for all to be saved, and he makes a way for us. But it's us, up to each one of us to respond to that. And so Jonah, this prophet, this reluctant prophet, has a six-word sermon. They all respond. By all, by all measures, by church growth standards, he's absolutely succeeded. He should plant a megachurch and write tons of books. That's what he should do at this point. But we'll see in the next chapter that's not what Jonah does. Jonah actually uh, is upset with God. Even though his preaching is effective, he should be incredibly humbled that God has used him so powerfully. And he should be overjoyed to see all of these people that have been saved. But he doesn't. And so in this story, the interplay between God's justice and his mercy has kind of come to a climax. And that's what Jonah's problem is. He wants God's justice in this moment. He wants God to pour out fire on this these people but instead when he's told when they're told that God wants to overturn them overthrow them they allow God to overthrow their lives to bring them to repentance they say take our lives God whatever you want and Jonah's upset with that but we'll get into that next week but the interplay uh, that we have sometimes people criticize God and say well in the Old Testament God's all fire and brimstone and the New Testament he's all lovey-dovey and so that must be two different gods but we can see right here in Jonah and in Jeremiah I read earlier God's God wants to relent from disaster but because he's holy because he's just sinners that aren't forgiven that don't ask for forgiveness can't make it into the kingdom of God because that wouldn't be just and so the the interplay here in the Old Testament there's Commandments the Ten Commandments and there's the call to holy living it's the example and that's called the law the law that we're given the example to follow which essentially Paul says brings us death because none of us can follow it perfectly but then we have the New Testament which is the gospel and it's the lived out example of the gospel which the gospel is the hope that Jesus alone brings that he is the propitiation for our sins he's the payment that he is the one who took the pain of death for us so that we could be forgiven that's what Jesus is. And so we see this inter- interplay at work. And the, uh, the, the law that is at work in our lives, it says it kills uh, the sin in us. It's what actually kills uh, our self-justification, our self-righteousness, our thinking that we can be good enough, that God will love us. But the gospel says you can't be good enough because Jesus is good enough. That's all you need. And so that's the interplay at work. And in Romans 6, Paul uh, relates this to baptism. He says, in baptism, we are killed to sin with Jesus. We're, we die to sin when we go under the water. We, we die to our old self, to our old life. And we are raised to life, to new life, like Jesus was resurrected. That's the spiritual transfer that is uh, exemplified by baptism. And so that's the the life that God calls us to, to die to our old self and to live a new life. And the amazing uh, miracle of the Ninevites isn't just that they repented, but it's God's amazing mercy poured out on these people, that God cared so much for these violent murderers that he sent a prophet to them to call them to repentance. And then they obeyed miraculously, and in the, uh, it's easy to, to look at the, the Bible and say, well, that's nice. That happened thousands of years ago. But in the early 1900s, in, uh, in uh, the Welsh revival, as it's known, that it's, it's kind of unclear how it started. There's lots of little details that happened. But all of a sudden, there was just an outbreak of people coming to faith in Jesus. There were tens of thousands of people who converted all of a sudden that, that came to saving faith in Jesus, that all of the churches were overflowing and that they would sing hymns of praise to God. And people couldn't, people couldn't point to one person that, that did this. They couldn't po- point to a Jonah who all of a sudden preached a six-word miraculous sermon. It's just thousands of people came to Jesus. And the, uh, the change in people's life was so amazing that the donkeys in the mine that were used to being cursed at to carry the coal off all of a sudden stopped working because the miners didn't feel comfortable swearing anymore. So the, the uh, donkeys had to be retrained in how to actually move coal. And I'm sure that would be frustrating, right? Like you clean up your language and all of a sudden you get frustrated enough you want to swear. But that's where these uh, these miners were. But that's an amazing story of the Welsh re- revival. I encourage you to Google it, read it in a book. They still have those. I do read them. Uh, but Go ahead and read it, and it's an amazing story. But do we have faith that that can still happen? That was 100 years ago. Nineveh was uh, thousands of years ago. Do we have faith that that could happen in Penticton, even Leduc? Do we have faith that that could happen? And so God's love turns our lives upside down. He wants to overturn Penticton. He wants to overturn the Okanagan. He wants to overturn Canada. And he wants all of the people to be saved and so when we repent by word and action we have an amazing miracle of the transition from death to life and how amazing would that be if that happened here if the Welsh revival uh, wasn't a, the most recent story of this what if there was the Penticton revival the Okanagan revival do we have faith that that's possible do we think that that's possible or do we think no these people kind of beyond hope I just kind of want to wait around and Host into the kingdom is that where our faith is I don't know but sometimes uh, sometimes we think that well you know God does move but he uses other people you know he uses someone who's a better Christian than me he'll use that pastor down the road or that woman that I know that's a prayer warrior that that's the person God will use but God calls you and he calls me and so the story of Jonah is a story of a reluctant prophet And God will still use you. So in the story in the beginning, when uh, the parable that Jesus told about the one who says, okay, I'll go and do that, and then doesn't do it, or the one that says, no, that's hard, I'm not going to do that, and changes their mind, I'd rather be the second one. I'd rather be a little reluctant, but then to actually do what God wants me to do, rather than just talk, rather than just say, yeah, I want to be a Christian, but I don't don't think I'll do the hard stuff in the Bible. I'll just kind of scoop in there. And so let's let's be people of great faith. Let's be people of great hope. In 1 Timothy, it calls us to pray for people. All great revivals have started with prayer, a devotion, a passion for prayer. And when you pray for somebody, your heart grows for them. That's why Jesus says pray for your enemies because it's really hard to hate someone you're praying for because God starts giving you the heart that he has for that person. So let's pray for the lost. Let's pray for those who need Jesus. Let's pray for our family members who are lost. Let's pray for our friends who are lost. Let's pray for our city. Let's pray for ourselves. You know, there's uh, often we think of uh, those other sinners, you know, those other bad people. But is there anything in your own life that you need to confess to God? I have uh, three quick things to finish us off here before Karis and her team comes up, and these are just things for us to reflect on. So the first is, does reaching the lost seem impossible? Does it just seem like that's too hard? I don't know enough Bible. I don't have the right way of talking to people. If if Jonah can do it, (laughs) when he ran away, you can do it. I have faith in you. I have faith. And God only asks us to share what he tells us. So whatever little you know, whatever lots you know, you could be a Bible scholar, share that. Share what God has done in your life with those around you. You know, I, uh, I often, and sometimes in my own head, I think, well, I'm very Canadian, so I never want to offend somebody. But I think, well, if I share about Jesus, someone's going to kind of push back and go, oh, I'm mad at God. I don't, I don't want to deal with that. But I've, been, I've often been surprised by how open people are to actually hear about Jesus. But usually it has to be done in a non-weird way. You have to just be a real person and talk to them. Ask them about who they are. Ask them about their kids, their family. And just watch how the conversation takes off and ask them what they think. Questions have an amazing way of going into a conversation. And so share with people. Even though it feels impossible, even though it feels huge, God is a big God. God is the God of the impossible. So there is hope. People aren't as closed as we might expect. And then the second is, how are we investing our resources, our time, our talents, our finances? Are we investing them in such a way that it reflects the compassionate heart of God to the lost? Are we, are we investing in such a way that we could affect the eternity of others? How are we using our time? Are we using our time to help other people hear about Jesus? How are we using our talents? What has God gifted you at? We all have gifts, and that God wants to use them. And then our, res- our financial resources. How are we investing individually as a community, as a church, in seeking and saving the lost? And then lastly, what do we need to repent of, either individually or as a community? Imagine what it would look like if God had all of our hearts, each of our hearts completely. In Nazarene circles, we would call this being uh, entirely sanctified. And it basically means that your whole heart is a yes to God. There's no areas of your life you're holding back everything is surrendered to God you know God can take one passionate person and set the world on fire he can just change the world through one person who's passionately devoted to him don't think it's possible again look at Jonah he only had a portion of Jonah's heart and he, and God uh, saved the whole city through that so as we uh, as we uh, come up and as Carson and our team come up and help lead us in worship let me uh, let me pray for us and so uh, I don't want to come down on a hard note here God is a God of great hope that's the story of Jonah it's of great mercy and uh, we often there's kind of the balance between justice and mercy and holy living or or God's grace and there's this beautiful balance in between That it's God wants to use us, and he wants us to participate, but we can't do it on our own. It's God working in and through us. So it's not all up to us, but he wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants to use each one of us. And I have great hope for what God can do in your life if you give everything to him. So let me pray. Jesus, you are so awesome. You are the God of mercy and of grace and love, and I pray that you would overturn this city for you. I pray that you would overturn Okanagan. I pray that we would be able to just watch your amazing Holy Spirit move powerfully among us. May we be a people of great prayer. May we be people who are constantly in prayer, thinking of the lost, thinking of those who need to hear your truth, Jesus. And may you give us the courage to share not, uh, not the little that we have, but who you are, Jesus. That is an amazing thing, even if we just know the littlest bit about you that is something that can move powerfully we don't have to do this on our own we have your holy spirit so i pray that you would heal this land i pray that you would heal Penticton, that it would uh the okanagan that we would be people of great faith moving in and among this city that we would be praying for them and that we would just see thousands of people come to know you jesus may you move powerfully we surrender our lives to you and say your name be praised jesus now let us stand and worship you and in spirit and in the truth, Jesus. Amen.